Due to the graphic nature of this cold case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of racism, lynching, assault, and murder. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. It's 2005, and Thomas Moore is getting ready to travel from Colorado to Mississippi. He packs as much as possible, because he doesn't know when he'll come back. He's on a mission, the most important one of his life. He leaves his house, locks the door behind himself, and loads his bag into the trunk of a Canadian journalist's car. The vehicle is already stuffed with camera equipment, the tools they'll use to film their documentary. Thomas gets in the passenger seat. He barely knows the reporter sitting behind the wheel, but he trusts him because they have something in common. They both want justice for Thomas's brother and his brother's friend who were murdered in a case overlooked by most of America. Until now. I'm Carter Roy, and this is Cold Cases, a Spotify original from ParCast. Every Monday, I tell you the story of a crime that went unsolved for decades. We'll explore a vast array of offenses, from burglary to arson to murder. Some weeks, forensic breakthroughs will solve long dormant cases. Others will still be left searching for the truth. Today, we're covering the murders of Henry Hezekiah D., and Charles Eddie Moore, two young black men who were killed at the height of the civil rights movement. Decades after the crime, a documentarian teams up with one of the victim's brothers, and together they dig for truths that some people want to keep buried. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Most of what we know about Henry Hezekiah D. and Charles Eddie Moore's story doesn't come from contemporaneous sources. It's revealed nearly 40 years after the fact. In reporting from Canadian journalist David Ridgen and Charles's brother Thomas. 
Ridgen's coverage brought buried truths into the light and helped turn the murder of Henry and Charles from a historical footnote into a landmark civil rights case. The story starts when Henry and Charles are just two childhood friends living in rural Franklin County, Mississippi. It's May 1964. Henry and Charles are both 19 years old. They're each trying to make their way in the world. Henry works in a lumber mill helping to support his family. Charles has returned home from Alcorn College, a historically black university that's about 40 miles away. He finished the semester on a sour note. The school suspended him for participating in a protest against the bad cafeteria food. At the time, protests are the norm for progressive causes. The civil rights movement is at its height, and there's unrest across the country as black Americans and their allies campaign for freedom and equality. But in Mississippi, a sect of the Ku Klux Klan known as the White Knights is threatening people's rights. This is the backdrop of Charles and Henry's lives. As black men in rural Mississippi They deal with this simmering tension every day. Despite this, they try their best to live their lives as normally as possible. On the morning of May 2nd, Henry works for two hours at the mill, then meets Charles in Meadville, a rural town in Franklin County. It's somewhat isolated. The whole town is surrounded by a vast swath of wilderness called the Homachito National Forest. Henry and Charles walk to the local bank and grocery store, where they bump into their friend Joe Lee Rollins. They joke around and catch up a little. Then Henry and Charles ask Joe for a ride home. Joe's going to a store across town, so he agrees to take Charles and Henry that far. This leaves Charles and Henry in front of a gas station where they try to hitchhike home. Hitchhiking is a way of life for them. Their families don't own cars. Charles's home doesn't even have running water or electricity. His mother, Maisie, provides for him and his older brother, Thomas, with her meager monthly income from welfare and working as a maid. In contrast, Henry's mother was placed in a mental health institution when he was a baby. He grew up under the care of his grandmother, Delia Haynes, who he adores. Now that he's grown up, he supports her the best he can with his paychecks from the mill. They rely on the kindness of strangers to get around through hitchhiking. But Charles's mom, Maisie Moore, strongly disapproves of the practice. She thinks it's dangerous. And that same day, around 10 a.m., Maisie is out with a friend when she catches the boys at the gas station trying to thumb a ride. She tells them she and her friend will come pick them up in 10 minutes after a quick appointment. But when she returns, Charles and Henry are gone. At first, Maisie's not worried. She figures they got picked up by a friend. But when Charles still isn't home later that night, she starts to get nervous. Maisie contacts the police Instead of conducting an investigation, Franklin County Sheriff Wayne Hudo says he thinks Charles and Henry ran off to Louisiana, where Henry's sister Thelma lives. 
but Maisie disagrees. According to statements Thomas and Thelma made years later, instead of trying to reason with authorities, Maisie does some digging on her own. She heads to southern Louisiana to see if Charles and Henry really are with Thelma. Well, this must be a long journey considering she doesn't own a car. And when Maisie arrives, she's met with disheartening news. Thelma says the men aren't there. They never were. And their disappearance is news to her, probably because it hasn't been featured in any media outlets. When we conducted an archival search of articles published in May 1964, we couldn't find a single article about Charles and Henry's disappearance. Apparently, it's not considered noteworthy. And the following month, another story dominates headlines. On June 10th, the U.S. Senate passes the Civil Rights Act, which prevents segregation in public places and discrimination based on race, religion, gender, and more. And despite this, white supremacists in Mississippi still try to intimidate black people when they're registering to vote. They threaten their jobs and their lives. Later that month, several civil rights groups organize what's known as Freedom Summer, a volunteer-run voter registration drive to combat discrimination. People from all over the country head to Mississippi to help. Among the volunteers are a black man named James Cheney and two white Jewish men named Andrew Goodman and Michael Schwerner. They head to Neshoba County in western Mississippi, about 160 miles from Charles and Henry's homes in Franklin County. There, Cheney, Goodman, and Schwerner encounter harsh resistance from local KKK members and law enforcement. On June 22nd, a police officer even warns them to get out of town. But the men don't cave to these threats, and the next day, they're all missing. Authorities find their car by the river's swamps, burned to a crisp. Because of that, the crime becomes known as the Mississippi Burning. The FBI starts investigating right away. Unlike Charles and Henry's case, news of the Mississippi Burning reaches the New York Times front page immediately. Publications across the U.S. run over 700 articles about the missing men in June alone. Now, as you've probably already guessed, the lack of media coverage about Charles and Henry back then means there's holes in our story today. We don't know what happens with their families until a month after their disappearance, in mid-June, when Thomas comes home from army training camp to find Maisie sitting on the porch at sunset. It's unclear whether Thomas already knew about his brother's disappearance by this point, or if this is when he learns about it. Either way, Maisie tells him she's sitting there because she's waiting for Charles to come home. Thomas replies, maybe he'll walk up to the gate, maybe he'll come in, but he doesn't. Another month passes with no sign of the young men. Then in mid-July, a fisherman is on the banks of the Mississippi River right next to the Louisiana border when he finds something in the water. 
This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. The fisherman sees a log floating in the river. A rope stretches from the log to the lower half of a man's body. The torso is still wearing a belt with the letter M on it. It's a grisly discovery, and it's only the first. The next day, law enforcement locates the lower half of another man, a few miles south of where the other was found. They send the evidence to a forensic pathologist in Jackson, Mississippi. The results come back quickly. The bodies belong to two 19-year-olds who went missing in May. Charles Eddie Moore and Henry Hezekiah D. After being missing for 10 weeks, five newspapers across the nation finally cover Charles and Henry's story. A reporter from the Chicago Daily News named Nicholas von Hoffman reaches out to their families. In his July 16th article, von Hoffman writes that Maisie Moore is afraid to talk to him, a white man. Henry's grandmother, Delia Haynes, feels similarly. She tells Von Hoffman, quote, I tell you, white folks, I just can't talk too much about it. I'm too broken up. The women's responses speak to the violent racism they live with every day. The KKK's white knights have been more active than ever, especially after Congress outlawed segregation earlier that summer. It's natural for the families to wonder if the KKK was responsible for Charles and Henry's murders. And if that's the case, getting justice is likely going to be tough. Meanwhile, the Mississippi burning case soon captures the nation's attention again. FBI agents and members of the Navy comb through the Mississippi wilderness until finally, in August 1964, they find James Cheney, Andrew Goodman, and Michael Schwerner. They've all been shot and buried in Neshoba County. According to tips, the crime was perpetrated by the KKK. Authorities arrest 18 Klan members in connection with the triple homicide. It's not until after all this happens that the FBI turns their attention to Charles and Henry. About a month after their bodies are found, FBI agent Jim Ingram finally begins investigating their murders, and it appears their deaths have some similarities to the Mississippi burning case. According to an LA Times report, decades later, several informants tell agents that KKK members have been boasting about committing the crime. They point to two suspects in particular, James Ford Seal and Charles Marcus Edwards. 29-year-old James Seal is a former police officer, truck driver, and current KKK ringleader. He comes from a family with so much wealth and influence in Mississippi that they have a street name for them in Franklin County. 31-year-old Edwards is another KKK member who works at a paper mill. Based on their informant's testimony, 
Local police arrest Seal and Edwards on November 6, 1964. Right away, the men spill their side of the story. Edwards claims that one night the previous spring, he and his wife were at home in Franklin County. His wife was changing clothes when she spotted someone spying through their bedroom window. Edwards got a glimpse of the peeping Tom, but the man ran off before he could confront him. On May 2, 1964, Edwards and Seal were driving in Meadville when they spotted Henry and Charles hitchhiking. Edwards thought he recognized Henry as the man who spied on his wife. He and Seal pulled over and picked the young men up. But instead of driving them to their destination, they took them into the surrounding woods. They don't say exactly where. But they do say once they were all alone, Edwards and Seal assaulted Henry and Charles with a whip. Their story ends there. They claim they left Charles and Henry in the area alive. Agents haven't ruled out the possibility of homicide, but at the very least, this admission means Seal and Edwards could face several other charges, kidnapping, assault with a deadly weapon, and attempted murder. But federal authorities don't have the bandwidth to prosecute Seal and Edwards, and they're busy prepping for the Mississippi burning trial. At this point, they give jurisdiction of the case over to state prosecutors. Mississippi District Attorney Lennox Foreman schedules a grand jury trial for January 1965. In the meantime, Lennox works on building a case against Seal and Edwards, but there's something gnawing at him. He knows he doesn't have a good chance of winning. Lennox likely looks at the evidence in the case and Mississippi's own political and racial divide. According to historian Pete Daniel, Mississippi's white population tended to support segregation. The state was home to several pro-segregation groups, but the most prominent one was the KKK. Harry McLean's book, The Past is Never Dead, notes that the Klan, especially the White Knights, weren't scared of law enforcement. In fact, at one point, McLean alleges they threatened to kill FBI agents. Because of this group's dominance, at least one of the FBI's informants refuses to testify in court. Other witnesses are scared to come forward, fearing KKK retaliation. That leaves Lennox with much less evidence. On top of that, Seal and Edwards make their own allegations about the police. According to the Jackson Free Press, they claim the Mississippi Highway Patrol mistreated them and denied them medication while in custody. Such accusations make it even more difficult for the case to continue. So, on January 5, 1965, DA Foreman announces he no longer has sufficient evidence for an indictment. He drops the charges against Seal and Edwards. Unfortunately, this is very common at the time. From the late 1800s until 1968, the NAACP reports that anti-civil rights groups lynched nearly 3,500 black people in the South. But according to the Equal Justice Initiative, law enforcement convicted just 1% of those killers for their crimes. 
So Charles and Henry aren't the only people facing this injustice in Mississippi. Remember how 18 people were arrested in connection with the Mississippi burning case? When they were brought to trial, only seven of them were convicted, and they were only found guilty of minor conspiracy charges, not murder. With that kind of precedent bearing down on prosecutors, Henry and Charles's case hits a wall. Jim Ingram, the FBI agent who conducted the original investigation, is angry. According to author Harry McLean, Ingram insists there's enough proof to go to trial at either the federal or state level, but because the case is no longer under federal jurisdiction, his hands are tied. None of this surprises the Moore family, but that doesn't mean they're not hurting. Charles's brother Thomas is consumed by anger, and he starts drinking a lot. He watches as his mother Maisie sits on the porch and cries, saying as if to the air itself, I wish he'd walk through that door. Thomas vows to get justice for his younger brother, and if the legal system won't do it, he'll take matters into his own hands. In 1968, he buys a rifle to hunt the suspects down. His mother, Maisie, learns about his plot and his desperation breaks her heart. She tells Thomas she's lost one son and can't bear to lose another. She makes him promise he won't do anything he'll regret. She tells him to stay in the army and, quote, let God take care of this. Maisie's words resonate with Thomas. He makes an important decision. His brother's killers may have chosen the path of violence, but he won't. Thomas ships off to the Vietnam War, but he never gives up hope that he'll get justice for Charles someday, somehow. His mother Maisie lives another 12 years, all the while deeply grieving for Charles. In 1977, at the age of 65, she dies in her sleep. Even after her death, Thomas keeps his promise. He lives a full and successful life. He marries his high school sweetheart, and they have a son. He earns two bachelor's degrees in social science and social work. He dedicates one of his diplomas to Charles and has his name inscribed on it. Thomas also has a long military career. He fights in the Vietnam, Korean, and Gulf Wars. He achieves the title of Command Sergeant Major, the highest Army rank possible. In 1994, after 30 years of service, 51-year-old Thomas retires at the place of his final post, Colorado Springs, over a thousand miles from Mississippi. He lives a quiet life with his family and takes a job as a counselor to troubled youth. For the first time in decades, he says he feels safe. But he still thinks of his brother, especially when he starts seeing civil rights cases finally get justice. In 1994, KKK member Byron De La Beckwith is convicted of murdering NAACP leader Medgar Evers in 1963, over 30 years earlier. In 1998, a group of white supremacists in Texas assault and kill a black man named James Byrd Jr. 
the killers are swiftly convicted and sentenced to death. For the first time, it seems like justice can be served, and Thomas is ready to fight for it. In 1998, 34 years after Charles Moore and Henry D's murders, Charles' brother Thomas starts campaigning for justice. He turns to the new Mississippi State District Attorney, Ronnie Harper, to reopen the case. But Harper refuses. He says state authorities don't have the manpower to take it on. And when Thomas asks the FBI, agents say they don't have jurisdiction on the murders because it was handed off to the state decades earlier. But Thomas doesn't give up, because soon the press becomes interested in the case. In 1999, ABC's news magazine 2020 starts covering civil rights cold cases and features Charles and Henry's killing. In that report, producer Harry Phillips uncovers a huge piece of information. Charles and Henry were killed in the Homochitto National Forest, which is federal land. That means federal authorities not only have jurisdiction over the case, but they should have been handling it all along. 2020 reporters don't stop there. On June 14, 2000, they tracked down James Ford Seal and Charles Marcus Edwards, the original suspects, alive in Mississippi. But they refuse to talk. However, they are able to speak with another major source, one of the FBI informants from way back in the day. His name is Ernest Gilbert. In the 1960s, Gilbert was the imperial wizard of the KKK's White Knights in Mississippi. Gilbert says that in 1964, James Ford Seal and other KKK members told him what they did to Charles and Henry. According to Gilbert, the KKK members didn't just assault the young men, they threw them in the river and the victims died in the water. He never explains why their bodies were found severed in half. Gilbert claims that after the attack, Seal, Edwards, and the others asked him for clan protection. But he says at this point, he was wanting to turn over a new leaf. Gilbert admits to holding racist beliefs, but claims he never supported outright violence, let alone murder. He says the details of Charles and Henry's murders were too much for him to bear. He tells 2020, I couldn't sleep, I couldn't eat, I could not live with it any longer. So Gilbert became an FBI informant. But still, he felt like it was too risky for him to testify in court in the 1960s. He feared the KKK would kill him. Four decades later, he goes public, hoping to help get Charles and Henry the justice they deserve. But he still refuses to testify in court. Apparently, he still thinks it's too risky to talk about the Klan's crimes while under oath. He dies without ever giving testimony on the case. Still, thanks to the interview and the 2020 episode, federal authorities reactivate Charles and Henry's case. After so many years, the investigation is difficult. FBI agents have trouble locating other witnesses, 
because at this point, many of them are dead, including one of the suspects, James Ford Seal. He just passed away. According to a Los Angeles Times report, Seal died in 2001. It's tragic. If authorities acted sooner, they might have been able to bring him to justice. Now, only Edwards remains, and he continues to maintain his innocence. With nowhere else to turn for answers, the FBI closes the case in June of 2003. Thomas hoped the high-profile media coverage would change things, but once again, his dreams of justice are dashed. He grows tired of the authorities' excuses and seems to give up. He quits thinking about the case and tries to live his life without answers once again. Then, in the summer of 2004, the story takes another turn. Thomas is contacted by a Canadian journalist and filmmaker named David Ridgen. Ridgen says he's making his own documentary about the Mississippi burning case's 40th anniversary. He hopes his film can help convict some of the perpetrators who escaped punishment in the original trial, namely a KKK leader named Edgar Ray Killen. Ridgen mentions he watched a 1965 CBC documentary called Summer in Mississippi. In the film, there's a scene about Charles and Henry's bodies being found during the search for the Mississippi burning victims. The narrator dismisses them immediately, saying their bodies were noted and forgotten. But Ridgen doesn't think Charles and Henry should be forgotten. He wants to know more about them. Thomas sighs and ignores the message. But they keep coming. He brushes off nearly 100 phone calls. Then he gets a FedEx letter from Ridgen. Apparently, the journalist now wants to make an entire documentary about Charles and Henry's murders. But Thomas is done trying. He's not interested in investigations or documentaries. He just wants to be left alone and to try to enjoy his retirement as much as he can. He doesn't answer any of Ridgen's calls or letters. But soon, something changes. The long campaign to convict Edgar Ray Killen becomes successful. In 2005, the KKK leader finally faces trial. The proceedings are televised. Thomas watches with rapt attention as the jury convicts the 80-year-old Killen of manslaughter. And he realizes, if this top KKK leader can finally be convicted in the Mississippi burning case, perhaps he can finally get justice for Charles and Henry. Maybe now it's worth investigating the case. Thomas thinks of David Ridgen. He picks up the phone and calls him back. Ridgen is pleasantly surprised. He makes plans to visit Thomas at his house in Colorado Springs. When Ridgen gets there, Thomas digs up his old photos of his brother and a briefcase filled with old FBI documents from the case. He even shows Ridgen his old rifle, the one he bought in 1968, intending to kill Charles and Henry's murderers. Eventually, Ridgen asks Thomas to come back to Mississippi with him. And Thomas is hesitant because he believes the state is dangerous. 
But he also sees Ridgeon's documentary as a non-violent way to gain closure for Charles and Henry. So Thomas agrees. They pack up the car and travel back to Mississippi, back to the place where Henry and Charles were murdered. The Homachito National Forest is vast and quiet. Being there is eerie, but it's fitting. As they stand beneath the trees, they look up Edward's phone number, and Ridgen makes the call. Edwards picks up. Ridgen says he'd like to speak with him on behalf of Thomas Moore. Edwards immediately hangs up the phone. Ridgen tries again, and the same thing happens. Then Edwards stops picking up altogether. Thomas leaves a voicemail asking to talk to him on neutral ground. While they wait for a response, the men travel around Franklin County. They stop by the gas station where Henry and Charles were last seen. They visit the banks of the Mississippi River where the young men's bodies were found. And they go to a cemetery in Meadville. It's by James Ford Seals' old church, and they think they'll find his grave somewhere inside. Thomas walks from headstone to headstone, each engraved with the names of Seal's family members. But none of them belong to James Ford Seal himself. It strikes Thomas as strange. Why wouldn't Seal be buried here? Where else could he be? And then, Thomas is gripped by a shocking idea. What if Seal isn't dead at all. Driven by desperation and a hunch, Thomas and Ridgen travel to Seal's hometown of Roxy, Mississippi. The Seal family is well known in this part of Franklin County. This is where they have an entire street named after them. Once in town, Thomas and Ridgen pull over at a gas station for a sandwich. There, Thomas makes conversation with a local man named Kenny Bird. Thomas talks about his brother's murder and tells him that Seal, a main suspect, supposedly died. But Bird shakes his head. He confirms what Thomas had already been thinking. Seal isn't dead. He lives in a mobile home right nearby. Bird even gives them directions on how to get there. Thomas and Ridgen can't help but laugh. All along, Seal has been alive, hiding from justice. They head right to his mobile home, which is parked in a concrete lot next to a white sedan. Seal lounges outside, right in plain sight. Thomas wants to confront him, but he's worried Seal might have a gun. So from a safer position on a hill overlooking the mobile home, he yells Seal's name. He says he wants to talk about his brother's murder. According to Thomas, Seal hears him and runs inside. Thomas walks back to his car with his head held high. The whole encounter leaves him feeling emboldened. Now that he's found Seal, he's determined to get justice more than ever. But he knows he needs to be careful. He and Ridgen need an authority behind them. They turn to a federal prosecutor named Dunn Lampton. Lampton is the U.S. attorney in charge of Mississippi's Southern District. Despite his authority in the area, 
Lampton hasn't heard about Henry Hezekiah D. and Charles Eddie Moore's 1964 killings, not until Thomas and Ridgen show up in Lampton's office. While making small talk, Thomas and Lampton find out they served in the same army division at the same time, but they never crossed paths. It's enough for Lampton to take on the case to help a fellow army veteran. He promises to look into the case. But right away, there's a snag in the plan. Lampton needs an eyewitness to testify the murders happened on federal land. Otherwise, they can't prove the case belongs under federal jurisdiction and can't prosecute it in federal court. The only two living witnesses are Seal and Edwards, which means Ridgen and Thomas really need one of the men to talk. For the rest of 2005 and into 2006, Ridgen and Thomas strategize. They know Seal won't budge, but they wonder if Edwards will. Ridgen and Thomas talk to the community and find out that Edwards is now a church deacon in Franklin County. On July 9th, 2006, Thomas and Ridgen confront Edwards and his wife outside of his church. Thomas flashes a stack of papers showing how much evidence they have against him, but Edwards simply denies knowing anything about the crime. He and his wife rush into the church and slam the door. Still, the interaction must get to Edwards because at some point later on, federal prosecutors offer him immunity in exchange for his testimony against James Ford Seal. And he accepts. That's enough for the Justice Department to finally charge Seal with two counts of kidnapping and one count of conspiracy. On January 24, 2007, federal authorities arrest Seal. His trial begins in June in Jackson, Mississippi. The prosecution has plenty of evidence of Seal's racism, including his use of racial slurs and a letter he wrote to the Franklin Advocate newspaper in 1964. In it, Seal uses a Bible scripture to argue against interracial marriage. But the most important of all is Edward's testimony. On June 5th, he tells his side of the story. In the spring of 1964, Franklin County KKK members heard a rumor that black Muslims were coming to Mississippi to collect weapons and incite an insurrection. Like many of the leaders, Seal and Edwards were on edge. Adding to this paranoia, Edwards' wife caught a man peeping at her through her home's window. She said it was a black man, and at one point, Edwards believed he saw the man's face. He kept an eye out for the peeping Tom, hoping to catch him. That brings us to May 2nd, 1964. Seal drove around Meadville while a pickup truck with Edwards and several other Klansmen followed behind. They came across Henry and Charles hitchhiking. Edwards thought Henry was the man who peeped on his wife, while Seal thought they might be part of a supposed black Muslim insurrection. Seal pulled over beside them. He told Henry and Charles he was a federal revenue agent and ordered them into the car. Henry and Charles obliged, but got nervous when they noticed Seal was driving the car into the Homochitto National Forest. 
either Henry or Charles finally asked for Seal to pull over, but he refused. Eventually, Seal let them out in a wooded area. There, Edwards and Seal restrained Henry and Charles, and the Klansmen assaulted them with bean poles. Seal yelled at Charles and Henry, demanding to know who was behind the insurrection. The men had no idea what he was talking about. The 19-year-olds ended up bloody and beaten, but they were still breathing. Charles and Henry were loaded into the truck and driven to the Mississippi River backwaters. With iron weights and an engine block attached to their bodies, they were pushed into the water. Charles and Henry, both just 19 years old and with their whole lives ahead of them, drowned and their bodies weren't found until two months later. In 2007, Edwards tells this story to the court. He says he's been scared of retaliation from Seal and the KKK ever since. But, as you might have noticed, something is still unaccounted for. Edwards never explains why Henry and Charles were found dismembered. So, while it's definitely good that he finally came forward and testified, it seems like he's still holding some details back. This story can't be the whole truth. Nevertheless, Edward's testimony plays a major role in convincing the jury to convict Seal on kidnapping and conspiracy charges. The judge sentences Seal to three life terms, meaning he'll spend his remaining years behind bars. Because he testified in exchange for immunity, Edwards is never officially charged in connection with the crime. It's as close to a victory as Charles and Henry's families are likely to get. It gives them some relief and closure. A year later, another win adds to that. Congress passes a new law introduced by civil rights activist and Georgia Congressman John Lewis the Emmett Till Unsolved Civil Rights Crime Act. It allows a specific type of cold case to be reopened. Civil rights era violent crimes against black people. Since the law's passing, the FBI has reopened over 150 cold cases. They've given countless families the justice and closure they deserve. As for Thomas Moore and David Ridgen, their first documentary is a major success. Mississippi Cold Case airs on CBC on February 11, 2007. It wins several Canadian Journalism Awards and Film Festival honors, including an Emmy nomination. The men team up again in 2011 to make a second documentary. It's called Reconciliation in Mississippi. They return to the state to speak to Charles Edwards. In the film, Thomas and Edwards sit on a bench outside the Edwards family home. Thomas recalls the trial and how much he hated Edwards for his role in Charles and Henry's death. Edwards opens up and admits once he became a deacon, he prayed for forgiveness a lot. He says, it was a black mark in my life. Three days later, Thomas attends a service at Edward's church. It's his way 
of showing forgiveness. Because over the past two years, Thomas was finally able to get the closure he needed. In 2010, he told the Jackson Clarion Ledger, Now I've got all the truth I can possibly get. I'm ready to move on and enjoy my retirement. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back next time with another cold case. For more information on Henry and Charles, amongst the many sources we used, we found David Ridgen's podcast and documentary films extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Cold Cases and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Cold Cases is a Spotify original from Parcast with executive producers Max Cutler and Drew Cole. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. This show was developed by Mickey Taylor. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash with Nick Johnson as our head of production and quality control by Spencer Howard. Ryan O'Leary-Jones is our supervising editor and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Cold Cases was written by Mallory Cara, edited by Sarah Batchelor, Karis Allen, and Giles Hofseth, fact-checked by Haley Milliken, researched by Mickey Taylor, with sound design by Russell Nash, and produced by Aaron Larson. I'm Carter Roy. Carter Roy.